This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm your host, Jonathan. Today, we transition from Muslim Iberia to Christian Iberia to fully understand the rest of the 11th century and what lies at its tragic end. And if you are listening to this, you are either a Patreon supporter or an anchor supporting listener, and I simply cannot thank you enough. However, I must also humbly offer a sincere apology, as this was scheduled to be our February Anchor bonus episode, and here it is, March 4th. A thousand apologies, and please know there will also be a March Anchor bonus episode released in the next couple weeks. Thank you for your support, and thank you for your patience. Today's episode, episode 60, is entitled, Iberia Has No End. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. It's been more than a decade since Cordoba officially fell. A decade plus of Muslim Berber mercenaries turning the Europe's ornament into ruins and ashes and rubble. In the book, Sea of Faith by Stephen O'Shea, we find it possibly summed up the best. Quote, The sad pageant of bloodshed in the years after Almanzor is an unedifying spectacle. Claimants to the throne sprang up like mushrooms, mercenary armies clashed throughout the Iberian Peninsula, and what can only be called a revolution by the people of Cordoba occurred in 1009. The following year was named the year of the Catalans, after the presence of a large contingent of Christians from Catalonia, selling their services to rival pretenders. Another year, 1013, saw the restive Berbers go utterly berserk, spending two months in Cordoba, looting, raping, and killing comprehensively. End quote. As O'Shea put it, quote, By 1031, the Umayyad Caliphate was gone forever, end quote. That is, after 1009, the official end to the years of Almanzor and his sons, there were a series of Berber and Andalusian taifas that sprang up across the peninsula, including a few Umayyad and one Hamudi caliphs who tried to pull the whole thing back together, until, that is, the year 1031, when Cordoba's highest nobility finally pulled up the carpets and called it a day. There was no patching up what Almanzor and his sons had wrought. Almanzor had brought about the demise of such a grand Muslim experiment in Iberia. And the nobility knew, too, they were complicit in the whole affair. From 1031 forward, Cordoba would officially be just one taifa among many others vying for supremacy. But it would no longer claim to be the center of Iberian Islam. Brian A. Catlos, in his book Kingdoms of Faith, A New History of Islamic Spain, wrote of this period in a bit more detail. After describing the brief reign of a Muslim Hamudid family resulting in their expulsion from Cordoba, Catlos explains, quote, The aristocracy of the city, eager to forestall any further unrest, acclaimed another great-grandson of Abd al-Rahman III as caliph. But the young Abd al-Rahman V was overthrown and killed after just six weeks in power in a coup led by his cousin, who took the throne as Muhammad III. 
He lasted only 16 months before being expelled from the city in 1025, only to be poisoned soon after. At this point, the caliphal title was claimed by Hisham III, an elder brother of Abd al-Rahman IV. His incompetent misrule finally cured the people of Cordoba of any further desire to be ruled by a caliph. He was expelled from the city in 1031 and wandered north to Larida in the Upper March, where he died five years later. End quote. I break from Catlas's narrative here to highlight a great turn of phrase by the author. His incompetent misrule finally cured the people of Cordoba of any further desire to be ruled by a caliph. That cured the people of any further desire to be ruled by a caliph. That's what I want to focus on. I just find it an interesting choice of words. Totalitarian rule and support of it in any form can seem, speaking as an outsider here, it can seem somewhat like a, a mental illness, to be quite honest. Sorry, but putting your entire faith in one person to make decisions for you seems irresponsible, reckless even. And these people were cured of their desire for a caliph. Also remember, these were Muslims. To be cured of the desire for a caliph seems to kind of go against what is at the heart of Islam, submission. Sure, Muslims are submissive to Allah, but remember the prominence, both religious and historical, a caliph holds for a Muslim. A caliph is said to be somehow directly connected to the prophet himself. I'm not sure what to make of it all, but I appreciate the sentiment of Catlos, at least. Okay, back to the author. He, he continues, quote, The era of Umayyad Spain had ended. After 22 years of civil war and ethnic strife, of counter-coups and pogroms, compounded by flooding and pestilence, Cordoba had been shattered. So thoroughly were its great palaces destroyed that the ruins of Madinat al-Zahira, were not identified until 1843, end quote. So O'Shea writes of the literature that sprung from such a calamity here. He says, quote, As can be imagined, a great deal of eulogizing ensued, for a moment of grace had passed. Any place where the good life was so ardently and sensually pursued, alongside its splashing fountains and beneath its spreading palm fronds could not fail to inspire delicious melancholy among the sensitive. One Cordoban, Ibn Hazim, author of more than 400 works of prose, wrote a memoir on heartbreak that can still touch the reader across a full millennium. In his The Ring of the Dove, he recalls falling in love with a beautiful slave girl in his household during the days of Cordoba's glory, Forced into exile, he eventually returned to the city and glimpsed his beloved after their long separation. End quote. Now, before we continue with O'Shea here, I've made it abundantly clear my thoughts on this curious custom of Muslim masters falling madly in love with a slave is just it's it's utter nonsensical in, on so many levels, right? But to give credit where it's due, this shouldn't diminish the man's feelings in terms of the double entendre happening here. Okay. O'Shea writes, quote, Is it the girl or Cordoba, he describes? End quote. It's just brilliant. So 
Ibn Hazim wrote, quote, Gone was her radiant beauty, vanished her wondrous loveliness. Faded now was that lustrous complexion which once gleamed like a polished sword or an Indian mirror. Withered was the bloom on which the eye once gazed, transfixed, seeking avidly to feast upon its dazzling splendor, only to turn away, bewildered. Only a fragment of the whole remained to tell the tale and testify to what the complete picture had been. End quote. Again, was he speaking of this aged slave girl for whom he once fell madly in love with? Or was it with another entity in which he placed his heart so long ago? Now in, now in ruins, rubble, and suffering the wrinkles of the Andalusian sun, as well as the whips and chains of broken promises and poor decisions. Again, I, I, it, it's just brilliant. Now what happened to Cordoba could have been foreseen had one taken even a half glance at just about any history book, even up to that point. There's one Andalusian poem that comes to my mind, though, written by Shmuel Ha-Nagid decades earlier. Now, Ha-Nagid was the head of state for Granada, as well as the leader of its military. Oh, and he was a Sephardic Jew to boot. As we think of Cordoba's illustrious climax in comparison to its calamitous collapse, please consider Ha-Nagid's words. He wrote, quote, Luxuries ease, but when trouble comes... People are plagued for the wealth they've accrued. The peacock's tail is spectacular, but it weighs him down on the day he's pursued. End quote. Cordoba wore its wealth and prestige and influence as a grand backdrop, framing its beauty and culture in whichever direction someone looked upon it, much the same way as the peacock. And when the peacock's beauty is no longer necessary, it becomes a lead weight though still able to stand on its own, escape a threat, and negotiate itself out of danger, eh, the peacock's tail is still an unnecessary hindrance to its very life. The enemies of Cordoba, at the first sign of weakness, swooped in and gave chase, and Cordoba was no longer in a position to negotiate its peace and prosperity. It's a brilliant poem. Catlos, though, says later that the caliphate wasn't technically gone as of 1031, not really. He writes, quote, there was no formal abolition of the caliphate, only indifference, end quote. I mean, a lot of folks pretended to claim the caliph's seat for the next several years, but no one was taken very seriously at all. 22 years was a long time to watch people come and go and continue to drive your livelihood into the dirt. And if history shows us anything, it's that people can put up with a whole heck of a lot of crap from their leaders. But when they've had enough, they've had enough. It's a hard stop. So in this environment of leaders being ignored, essentially, Han Nagid gives us a bit more of his poetic prophecy, another sparkle in the ornament of the world. Quote, Could kings write a people gone bad while they themselves are twisted? How in the woods... Could shadows that bend be straight when the trees are crooked? Now, not saying the people were the problem here, but we can't dismiss the fact that every community in history earns the leaders they're ruled by, as subjugation, though on the surface, may sometimes seem like a situation outside of their circle of control. Authority, as is so eloquently said in the United States Constitution, 
is ultimately derived from the people. So back to Hanagid, these caliphs, these kings in the poem, can they provide the solution while they themselves are a singular component of the core problem in that society? Can another caliph be the solution, especially when it is a caliph who had been created by the firestorms and tumult of a two-decade-long civil war that sprang up from the oppressive rule of one Al-Manzor? They are, according to Hanagid, but shadows of a crooked tree. Regardless of how desperate they are to straighten their form, they know of only one way to be, as twisted as the times that created them. Now, some of you might disagree with what you just heard, so let me add one small point of clarification. It takes a special person to do what every other shadow cannot. These are the people we admire the most in our history books. So, yes, exceptions do exist, but these folks in Cordoba after Almanzor, they weren't them. They were the shadows of the twisted trees who knew no better. By the late 1030s, Zaragoza, had unified the Upper March, which is more of a northeast um, with a kind of a central bent to it. It wasn't as far as Barcelona, but it was in that northeast area of Al-Andalus. That was what they called the Upper March. Also, in the much more densely populated south, you essentially ended up with Seville and Granada being the big dogs on the block, while Cordoba and Toledo and Badajoz held the middle in northwestern portions of Al-Andalus, but it wasn't after another 20 years or more of brutality and warfare and political intrigue that that occurred. A contemporary writer didn't much care for these new leaders, not giving much legitimacy to their posturing. This guy wrote, quote, They give themselves grandiose names like The Powerful and The Invincible, but these are empty titles. They are like pussycats who, puffing themselves up, imagine they can roar like lions. End quote. And make no mistake, those largely toothless northern Christians were watching very intently and very eagerly. Though they weren't entirely innocent in this regard, they haven't forgotten the last century or more of harassment and harrying by their Muslim neighbors to the south. And without a strong central authority or really any central authority at this point, they were preparing to strike while the iron was hot. They had watched from a distance, largely staying out of the fracas at an official state level for the better part of 40 years. They had their own issues, sure. But they watched while their Muslim foes continued to weaken themselves year after year over the course of someone's lifetime. And finally, were ready to leave the tragedy in central and southern Iberia, and make the dry, mountainous journey north to the other players on the peninsula. These kingdoms were more or less controlling the northern third of Iberia for the same amount of time Muslims controlled the southern two-thirds. A little caveat, though. Over the course of these centuries, these borders fluctuated wildly north and south, depending on how ambitious the rulers of each side became. However, by the 1030s, Iberia still looked very different than it had leading up to it. During those centuries, it's worth noting that it was hardly just Christians versus Muslims. No, it was also very much Christians versus Christians, and this wouldn't stop, as you'll soon see on the podcast. So, this is how it was all laid out in the north. Along the northern third, 
backed up against the gigantic Bay of Biscay from the northwest to northeast was a series of Christian kingdoms that fractured centuries earlier after the Germanic Vandals moved on and then the Muslims moved in. Between the early 800s through the year 1066, the official end of the so-called Viking Age, this coastline was one of many European targets for many generations of Vikings, possibly the most famous being Olaf Haraldsson, older half-brother of the very man whose death marks the end of the Viking Age itself, the one and only Harald Hardrada. However, these invasions lessened since Normans became French, thus Christian, extending their influence over, over other Christian kingdoms and groups in their cultural neighborhood. Now, in the northwest, there was the Kingdom of Galicia. Galicia held a special place and amount of influence, as it was the home of Santiago de Compostela, wherein a cathedral held the remains of the Apostle James. This cathedral was the gem of Christian Iberia and was, even for a spell during the 10th and 11th centuries, the most visited pilgrimage site in all of Europe. Now, from the Atlantic Ocean, southern Galicia controlled the mouth of the Duero River. Today, the mouth of the Duero spills out in the city of Porto, Portugal. But if we follow this waterway eastward a couple hundred miles, we come to the kingdom of Leon, with its two major cities of Zamora, which lies along the Duero itself, and north of that, the city of Leon. And like Galicia, Leon essentially extended from the Duero north to the Bay of Biscay. Another vertically oriented kingdom to the east of Leon was the kingdom of Castile, whose name is related to the word castle, as it was a land pockmarked with stone fortifications and walled cities. It had a reputation, you could say. In Castile, we find ourselves right smack in the middle of the peninsula, where Galicia and León shared a southern border with the Muslim taifa of Batajos, Castile shared a southern border with the taifa of Toledo, the last real Muslim stronghold from what we once called the Cordoba Caliphate, but again, uh, we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves here. Now, moving east along the Duero River, well, we come across the Duero's headwaters near the modern-day city of Durelo de la Sierra, some 1,300 feet above sea level and 560 miles from the Atlantic. If we travel a bit farther, we reach the blurry border of Castile and enter the kingdom of Aragon, who shares a northern border with the kingdom of Navarre, where the city of Pamplona was and is today, and a southern border with the county of Barcelona, who not only backs up on its northeast with the mighty Pyrenees Mountains that separates Iberia from the mainland Europe, quite effectively actually, but this county of Barcelona also has a very long coastline along the Mediterranean. So these Christian kingdoms and counties pretty much stack up like a bookshelf if you think about it, mostly vertical and orderly starting in the west, and as you make your way east, like any avid book collector, the shelf begins to resemble what a bookshelf might look like if you had a preschooler in charge of shelving things. No? Just me? Okay. Regardless, with the exception of Navarre, every Christian kingdom in Iberia had to deal with being in the shadow of the once bright ornament of the world to their south. That's the truth of it. But as we've discussed, that light has faded and it was their time to shine. 
By 1040 or so, we have already seen a rather sizable unit of mounted French knights cross the Pyrenees into Barcelona and take on the Muslims in and around Zaragoza, another powerful Muslim taifa that, if you remember who that was, you've earned the teacher's pet award, but if not, that's okay too. They call this guy the Moor Eater, if that rings a bell. The one and only Roger of Tosny, a Norman nobleman who ended up courting the daughter of the widowed Countess of Barcelona. The stories of the Moor Eater were still widely told around campfires and hearths of Muslim Iberia, much as a boogeyman story is told today, a cautionary tale. But at the time, it held a much heavier gravitas, as there were still supposedly witnesses alive to the barbarity of that Frenchman. Now, I know we focused quite a bit on the Muslim Iberian world in recent episodes, but there was just as much happening in the northern third of Iberia, too. It just held lesser consequence, comparatively speaking. But on the next episode, we catch Christian Iberia up to where Al-Andalus was by the 1040s. It seems as if Iberia simply has no end to it, and that's all the better for me, as I can't seem to get enough of this area of the world personally, and I hope you too are enjoying its stories unfold here on the podcast. On the next episode, we dive headfirst into the deep end of Christian Iberian politics, familial squabbles, and military exploits that lead to arguably the single most enduring legend of modern-day Spain. Thank you all for listening and supporting the show. If you enjoy this content and feel others should, too, then please head over to Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, wherever you download your podcast, and leave a five-star review. Your reviews help to catapult podcasts to the front pages of podcast services. So the more reviews this podcast gets, the higher up the lists we'll get. Also, if you believe in what this podcast is doing, please consider heading over to Patreon and becoming a supporting listener there. Members on Patreon are instantly treated to the entire catalog of episodes, as well as our new series about the rise of Poland. And just an extra special thanks to you if you are listening to this. That means you are an anchor-supporting listener. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time.